We're recording. It's happening. We're making a podcast together. It's happening. It's happening. How are you? Thank you so much for being on Feminist Hot Dog. I'm good. It's so good to be here. I miss your face. I know. You are my first remote guest. So this is a a little bit of an experiment. You're a trailblazer, a feminist hot dog trailblazer. (laughs) Good good to know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Happy to be here. Um, I have a little bit of like shameful business that I have to take care of before we start talking about you. No shame. No shame. Uh, No, no shame. I'm just going to own my inaccuracies, which, um, (laughs) which I had one of last week when I was talking to, um, to Val and we were talking about, um, abortion rights and abortion access. Um, and I, for whatever reason, I kept talking about Roe versus Wade passing as if Roe versus Wade was a law, um, which of course it's, was not a law. It was a Supreme court case. And, um, I do actually know the branches of government. I actually happen to have a master's degree in political science. So I'm not sure why I said that, but just, just so the listeners know, um, Verb tense. It's just a verb usage. (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) We know. know. Correction corner. Just wanted to throw that out there. Um, (laughs) So yeah. And also just thank you to everyone who's been so kind in in your response to the podcast. It's now available on Spotify and Stitcher in addition to Apple iTunes podcast, Apple podcast. I don't, I can't, I can never figure out if it's iTunes or Apple podcast. But the app, the app that everybody has if you have an iPhone. Um, so it's just been very, very sweet and affirming to get all that feedback. So thank you to those of you who have listened and subscribed. It means a lot. We're podcasting. I know. It's really, really fun. And I've been super looking forward to our conversation because you popped into my mind pretty much immediately when I decided to start this little project. I was like, we've got to get Lauren she is, I mean, you're kind of, you're hot dog to the core is, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I'm telling you, we got to get t-shirts, man. I, I would wear that t-shirt all day long. <laughs> I think it's in the works and maybe some, maybe some sweatpants because that's pretty much what I prefer to wear. Yeah. I, I, well, I'm more of the leggings basic variety, but I think that, you know, it, whatever we can do to get the hot dog branded, I'm with it. We can get you some leggings. I'd be down with that. I'd like some, like some bell bottom leggings. Those are the ones I'm real into right now. Nice. Um, well, let's talk about you and what you're about and what you're up to and who you are. My guest, my, my fourth guest. Oh, let's see. It feels like you're like at a, you know, like a self-help session. I'm like, hi, dating. (laughs) dating. which oddly enough, I have a lot of experience in just dating in general. Uh, Mm -hmm. Let's see. So I am um, an educator. I'm a longtime teacher. I um, have moved all over the country. I'm a single parent, which a lot of um, very, I think at the very core of me being a feminist is kind of believing that I can do this shit. I don't need anyone else to do this. And I um, have a young son and I'm currently also getting my doctoral degree. So yes. I'm 
plate. <laughs> you have a lot on your plate, but having having witnessed you juggle that all very successfully, I can <clears throat> I'm I'm in awe and you're and you're raising your young son to be a feminist too, which is so wonderful. I totally am. My bet my favorite feminist story about him, which I guess well, I guess feminist in a way that I don't teach him about gender norms and toxic masculinity and whatnot is that uh, we were at the department store the other day actually and he saw two different Santas and one was black and one was white and he was like so Santa's husband is the white one and I was like yes so (laughs) black Santa is kind of like who Santa is and the white Santa just happens to be his husband who kind of happens to be there yeah, that is that's a big win for me as a parent for sure. <laughs> I love that story. Oh. Well, I also know that you um are very politically aware and socially active. Um so tell me a little bit about kind of what what your focus has been lately. I am. And I think that's something that's kind of been like over the course of time, you know, I've thought like, okay, where's my place in all of this? And what have I benefited from? And as a teacher, you're constantly kind of thinking about, um, you know, what's fair and what's just, especially if you teach in certain schools across this uh, country. And so I think education, social justice education is very near, dear to my heart, kind of seeing, um, who gets access and who is afforded opportunity in our nation's education system and who is not. Um, And then switching it from being called the achievement gap that's happening between our black and brown kids and our white kids and calling it the opportunity gap. Because we don't want to put the onus on our children that they're not the ones achieving. We're really the ones that haven't provided them the opportunity. So that's a big part of my belief about um, being political is really fighting for Um, equity with our students in this country. And then another big part of it is I'm a Latina and my family comes from Mexico and comes from New Mexico before it was New Mexico. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I feel very, very strongly about immigration and about what's happening in this country um, and kind of the recent rhetoric of, uh, you know, hatred towards people who are trying to come here and find a better life because I would not be here if my family had not come here looking for a better life. So well, thank are, you. Yeah. I would love to hear a little bit about what made your feminist heart sing this week. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you and I actually talked about this and we had the same one. I know. Lauren and I picked the same thing, which is our, our feminist hearts are beating in sync. Clearly. (laughs) But that's okay. I I can switch it up. So this little girl that back in March, um, there's this beautiful picture of her and she saw the portrait, the national portrait. Is it the national portrait gallery? I think it is. Yeah. Um, and she was looking up, a little two-year-old looking up at Michelle Obama and just in awe of her. And then later went on to meet her and they had this, you know, kind of like cute little dance party that went viral and whatnot. Well, this little girl, her name is Parker Curry. She dressed up as Michelle Obama in the portrait gallery dress and it is for Halloween. And it is the most beautiful, wonderful thing you've ever seen in your life. She's got the, she's got the pose, she's got the dress and it's just gave me life, gave me everything this week. Well, what I loved about that story was that her mom really had to go out of her way to make that dress happen. Cause that's like a serious, like 
high fashion haute couture. I don't. I never know how to say that. Am I saying that right? Haute couture. Uh, I'm not the person to ask, but it sounds right. It sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So it's like that big black and white dress with all the um, the geometric, colorful geometric prints and train and it's like yeah it's a very very impressive dress and so I mean but as soon as you see her in it you I sorry I just snapped my finger so as soon as you see her in it you're like that's the picture that's the dress that's and so they did it however they made it they did an incredible job and I love the power in her face she's just like oozing how like joyful she is to be in this dress to do this picture it's awesome well and it makes sense because I mean who wouldn't want to be Michelle Obama? So what a great opportunity. <laughs> well said. <laughs> well said. One, another little piece of that story that I think is really fun is that Michelle Obama actually retweeted her image. Like Parker has her own Twitter and Michelle Obama tweeted out the picture and said, you nailed the look, Parker. I love it with a big heart. I know it's so awesome so sweet yes that little girl think about that how she's gonna have that from her like from her, such a very young age this like empowering like such beautiful strength it's so cool so what made my feminist heart sing this week besides Parker who really she really made me that was like bomb for my heart after another real <laughs> a real kind of a Difficult news week again. Um, I don't know why I, I even comment on that anymore. It just seems like the permanent state of affairs. But so I don't know. You haven't had a chance to listen to last week's episode, but I've been um, I've been really into thinking or like researching these 20th century stories of like female badassery that I never had any ex idea existed. Like these th these things that. I find out about them and I'm like, holy shit, that's so cool. But I never knew that that was a thing. Um, so last week I was talking about the Janes who were an underground collective of women who um, helped before Roe Ro versus Wade, uh, quote unquote, passed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they would help women um, access safe abortions. And this week I was reading about this. Um, I don't know, how, I can't really, it's not a group, it's not an event, it was like a camp. Oh, it's, it was called the Greenham Common Women's Peace Camp. And it was an anti-nuclear protest that started in 1981 and went on for 19 years. Whoa. Yeah, and literally hundreds of thousands of women participated in this or stayed and lived in this camp at one point or another over the course of almost two decades, which is like, <laughs> what? How did I? Crazy. How have I never heard of this? So um, <clears throat> the camp was held outside of the Greenham Common Air Base in Berkshire, England. Okay. And it was started by a Welsh group called Women for Life on Earth um, in 1981, as I said, to protect um, essentially to protest the decision the British government was going to allow cruise missiles to be stored there. And um, so originally it was organized as a march, but then I guess it became obvious to them that the march was not going to be, not going to cut it, not going to send the message. So they evolved the protest into a permanent camp. 
um, all around the the perimeter of this um, airbase. And at one point, they created a human chain of 70,000 women. It was 14,000. And then four zeros. Okay. (laughs) Four zeros. Thank you. Yeah. Like, because I, like, at first when I read that, I was like, no, that can't possibly be right. 70,000. Okay. And it, and it stretched for 14 miles. Um, and I, the, I read an article by a woman named Sophie Meyer, and she describes this camp um, as basically an alternative world. Like you entered it and it was like it had its own infrastructure. And she describes it as a shining example of nonviolent feminist action changing both lives and laws. So like doesn't the hair on the back of my neck is like standing up. As a, I'm, I wish there was one here, like now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like there's some potential for that, Lauren. I, this, I was, my mind went in the same, the same direction. So, um, so let's see. This what Sophie describes: women singing into police officers' faces at the gates of the base. Women organizing life in intense, giving birth hauling ladders, debating money, learning skills and ideas from each other, living life openly and unrepentantly. That's what's up. Yeah. What year did you say this was again? It started in 1981. Um, There's a great, so this article that I read is on a website called opendemocracy.net. I highly recommend and I'll link it on the website too. So um, Sophie says, hundreds of thousands of campaigners travel to the site to protest the storage of cruise missiles, campaign for multilateral disarmament and nonproliferation. Having decided to collectively create an all-female camp after incidents of rape early on, boo, um, Greenham Common became a high-profile, long-lasting experiment in feminist cooperative living. So these women, they would get evicted, but they would just come back. They would say they were leaving and then just stay. <laughs> what a bunch of badasses. That's amazing. Um, they endured, att- the camp was attacked multiple times. They were not welcome in the nearest town, which made it very difficult for them to organize kind of basic needs. Um, mm-hmm. And they endured police harassment, but never, nevertheless, they persisted. Um, the main activity in the camp was between 1981 and 1987, and the last missiles left the base in 1991. But there were people living there up until the year 2000. Um, and at that point, the protesters won the right to put a memorial where the camp had been. Um, the last woman, woman to leave had been there for all 19 years. Wow. I would and, love to talk to her. Wouldn't you just love to sit down and just like talk to her and hear her story? Uh, yes, I definitely would. And the, the site is now a park and it's called the Greenham Peace Garden. Um, so of course, our man who calls himself our president who, who lost the popular vote, um, he just withdrew from a nuclear arms treaty with Russia that had been in place since 1987. So... I don't know, something to think about. Something to think about, indeed. I feel so educated. I had no idea. See, these are the kinds of things. This is, this is why I'm all about education. We got to teach these kinds of things. That's amazing. It is an amazing, amazing story. It, def- it, made, it didn't just make my feminist heart sing. It made my feminist heart, like, palpitate <laughs> and, like, explode. 
it was yeah i just can't imagine that the level of ingenuity and perseverance and sacrifice but that i imagine also the um the camaraderie and the sisterhood and the what a unique experience to live only among women like for years that it's kind of like the amazons and wonder woman yeah yeah <laughs> i was like that looks pretty awesome <laughs> like i would totally live there like yes because i feel like most of the issues in my life are inflicted by my issues with you know dating crappy men so you know like i feel like hey maybe that's uh, maybe that would be great <laughs> and in wonder woman they had the island and apparently like seemed to have a lot of money too so like yeah, that, yeah i'm there for that too yay okay well our hearts are singing now we're gonna give some advice okay um <clears throat> this is a tough one and I'm really curious to know what you have to say. Okay. I, uh, yeah. The drama just got real. I'm ready. Dear Feminist Hot Dog, how do you respond to mansplaining? I work in IT and, I, and it happens to me on a daily basis, typically multiple times a day. Um, it is beyond frustrating, not only because I am one of the only women in my department, but because my male colleagues regularly assume that I don't know the basic responsibilities of my job. Sometimes it makes me furious, but sometimes I wonder if I'm being unfair or defensive. Maybe they're just trying to help and just being clueless, or maybe they are just insecure and I should feel sorry for them. Mm. I'm even wondering if I am being sexist because of how I feel. Anyway, if you have any advice for how to respond when it happens, I would appreciate it. I have to work with these people, so telling them to go fuck themselves is not an option. Signed, just a girl in the IT world. Oh. Yeah, I mean, my first reaction is tell them to go fuck themselves, but she's right that if you got to work with the people every day, you definitely can't do that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that's tough. And that's a tough place to be in, especially when you're a woman that's surrounded um, by men completely. And especially in a field that isn't really, you know, historically female dominated also. And so you're already kind of um, on an island there too. And that's where, like, I think, um, I think mansplaining happens a lot to a lot of people, women. Um, but her environment, like the context in which this is happening is not one that I'm super familiar with. And that's where I'm, that's where I'm kind of scratching my head on the best way to respond. Um, Cause I feel like she has a real opportunity here mm -hmm. to, you know, if she has good relationships with these men to educate them and maybe help them see what they're doing. Um, but again, it, there's a, there's always a risk involved in that because as she, I think very wisely points out, I th sometimes this is a function of insecurity and if you exacerbate that by um, kind of challenging or, or calling people out or putting them on the spot or suggesting that, um, you know, putting out to them what they're doing, then that insecurity can double back on you and be harmful in, in the workplace. 
Yeah. And you definitely don't want to work in a toxic environment, right? It can be so draining to you and you don't want to be in a place like that. I think you're right. She has an opportunity to educate them. I would wonder what kind of relationship she has with them also. If she has a pretty good, friendly, you know, kind of joking relationship with them, you know, could she bring up like, so you've heard of mansplaining, right? You know, and just kind of be like, Okay, so that's just what happened, right? That's I feel like if I had a good relationship with people, that's that's generally what I do. I do that to my brother, you know, like other people who have okay, thanks for mansplaining that to me and just kind of mm-hmm. looking about it. Um, but I would say that if it's a little bit trickier, if it's um if it's not that kind of relationship, then I guess I would look for instances to point out that I've already done that or I've already said that or I've already you know what I mean? Like I just would kind of be blatant about like, yeah, that's what I just did. You know, or that's what I just said, or, you know, like, and just kind of calling attention to the fact that I know what I'm talking about. And like, not in a bitchy way, but like in a very matter of fact way. That's where I'm at too. I think that, um, the way that this, this actually came up for me just this week, I was on a call with somebody and, um, he basically was like, well, you know what you could do? You could do, you know, blah, 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 you know, sort of made this suggestion, which is something that I already do all the time. And Mm -hmm. actually, if this guy was paying attention to what was happening in our department on the level that um, he probably should be, then that he would have known that. (laughs) Right. It was a sort of a moment. And so I just, I was able to say, um, you're right. That is a really effective thing to do. In fact, we do that all the time. And here's some examples. Exactly. And just to like assert myself, but I did it in a way that was um, like, yes, and mm-hmm. and here is what I can tell you about that because I can tell you a lot about it. And that is not new. You know, that is not like a a brilliant new suggestion or idea that just came into your mind. Um, (laughs) Not the first person to ever think of that. I'm a big fan of the yes. And I think in general, mm -hmm. you know, like I love the yes. And like, of course, like, yes, you're correct. And giving the person that and then saying, and right. Like, and then adding in your, your piece about it. Yeah. I'm a big, I'm a big fan. I'm with you on that. So all of this does um, hurt me a little hurt my soul a little bit too, because the, all of these strategies that we're talking about um, also are, are essentially kind of caretaking. Like it's, we're caretaking in the egos of people who didn't caretake for our egos. And that inequity like mm-hmm. is something that I think about a lot. And I do, I try to think, I try to be compassionate about it and recognize that like we all um, were socialized in an environment where men's ideas and um, their, you know, essentially men sort of reign supreme. And so they're socialized to think that women often, I think, um, wise up to that much more quickly and are like, wait a second, actually, there's we all have great ideas. There's um, women are really just as good at everything. And there's no reason why men should have to dominate any of these conversations. Um, but I, but that's a really hard, it's hard to 
recognize the way that you've been socialized. I mean, at a, at a very core level, because we all, and Robin D'Angelo talks about this in her book, White Fragility, and she's talking mm-hmm. about it in the context of race, but I think it's relevant here too. Um, we all want to believe that we're individuals and that we're not susceptible to these messages or these behaviors um, or that if we if we're kind of intellectually tuned into the idea of equality, that our behavior somehow won't reflect these socialized beliefs, and that's just not accurate. Okay, so awesome plug for Robin D'Angelo. I actually just saw her at a conference last week, and she was talking about this idea that um, you know we're all breathing in this smog our entire lives that we can't really escape it. It becomes a part of us. It becomes a part of kind of our natural reaction to things, and that. What we do a lot of times is we use proximity as kind of our um, excuse that it doesn't affect us. Like, oh, I, you know, I have a husband or I have a son or I work with male, you know, coworkers. So therefore, this doesn't really affect me because I'm, you know, used to it. But really, all these images and society and everything that we've grown up with, you know, really impacts how we view things. And so, yeah, we're, we as women, you know, grow up and we're in a meeting and we, kind of think, oh, I have to defer to that voice or I have to kind of, you know, not speak as loudly or whatever it might be. And it's very interesting to think about that dynamic that we're all just kind of living all the time. And it is, it does wear on a person um, pretty intensely. And, and again, it, I think that this is um, a conversation that I've had with um, in the context of race quite a bit and not as much um, in the context of gender, but it, I, I, the the conflict that she's pointing out here is I think she's trying to be really empathetic um, to her coworkers and and look within herself as to find the best way to respond, um, which I totally support and and think is admirable. But at the same time, it does piss me off that the, the amount of like emotional caretaking that has to go on to just be able to like get your ideas out there and get on with the meeting and get on with being recognized for your work. And I, so even though like in that moment that maybe is not the most constructive, it's not going to further your cause to express that anger in the moment, that anger is still there. And I feel like, um, I just really think it's important to acknowledge that that can really weigh on a person and affect them negatively over time. And so that's why I really would encourage her to think about ways to kind of um, help educate and point out when this is happening. And even, even just, you know, the yes and I think is a great strategy if you have the relationship to kind of, you know, even bring up the term mansplaining, although that, there's some risk involved in that, of course. Um, or even to kind of preemptively just say like, hey, y'all, we're going to have a conversation about this. And I just want to establish that this is my area of expertise. And so I'd like to take the lead or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, those could all be effective. And, um, and I hope that um, just a girl in the IT world will report back and and tell us how that goes for her. We're going to talk about the Hot Dog Hall of Fame. Um, And do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Uh, It's up to you. I'm happy to go first if you would like me to. Yeah, do it. 
Okay, so my hot dog hall of fame is I was watching Netflix, as one does, and actually in my life, as I do not do very often, so I get really excited when I get a chance to, like, finally have, like, you know, a chunk of time, and I'm big on documentaries because I'm a nerd like that, and I own it, Um, and there was this documentary, and it was called The Hundredth Year, and it is about this incredible artist. Her name is Carmen Herrera, Herrera, and she was born in Cuba, and she is currently 103 years old. Whoa, Carmen. Carmen is living a really good... Okay, I'm sorry. It's called The 100 Years Show. And it's on Netflix. And it was incredible. So Carmen Herrera is this artist. And she does these incredible, very minimalistic um, paintings. And we're talking about like in a huge canvas with like one line on it, right? But incredibly precise, you know, pristine um, painting and whatnot. And she was actually um, shown in the same galleries as like Mondrian, who we think of as like the, you know, artist who did the very primary colors and right angles paintings. Mm-hmm. And was told over and over and over again by all of these, um, you know, who are the people that own the galleries, like the gallery people... You know, curators. yeah, the curators. Oh, I would totally give you your own show if you weren't a woman. Boo. So boo, double boo. Exactly. So she has kind of lived all of these years and she makes a new piece of artwork every single day. Wow. And now she has an assistant who works with her and helps her to kind of go get the paint from the store and kind of lay down some of the huge canvases and whatnot. But she's still creating a piece of artwork every single day. And now um, I think that when the documentary came out or maybe it was, you know, three years ago when she was 100, (laughs) 100, they gave her her own show at the Whitney, which is a huge um, art museum, you know, like kind of like the thing right in New York City. So this idea that she was this badass painter, badass woman who was creating, you know, artwork that was either on the level or farther than many of her male counterparts who were artists. And they wouldn't give her shows because she was a woman. And now they're doing documentaries and showing her work when she's a hundred. And so, but when you watch the film and you see her, her spirit, and she's just this strong, vivacious, drinking people under the table still, you know, at dinners type of woman. And she just um, is incredible. And so I think she goes up in the Hall of Fame because she should have been shown at the Whitney probably 50, 75 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) No kidding. 75 years too late, but better late than never. Oh my gosh. Carly, love her. Does she still live in Cuba? No, I think she lives here. I think she left Cuba during, you know, when, when shit was getting real down there. Um, if I remember correctly, she came and um, she was married to an artist herself. She just is an incredible woman with a really long, awesome life story. So she definitely, for me, um, goes into the Hall of Fame. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I can't, I can't wait to learn more about her and to see her paintings i'm really inspired by the idea that she makes a piece of artwork every single day too that is a true artist who feel i mean is like internally motivated like who who at 100 is still doing the same thing every day like i can't even get myself up and do some things on the weekend <laughs> <laughs> it's 100 and she's making artwork every single day it's it's just unbelievable um well 
my um, inductee into the Feminist Hot Dog Hall of Fame this week is a woman named Mona Haydar. I think I think that's how you say her name. <clears throat> and she is a Syrian American. She's a Muslim and she is a rapper, poet, activist, practitioner of permaculture, meditator, composting devotee, mountain girl, solar power lover, and tireless God enthusiast. That is how she describes herself. Stop it. I'm exhausted already just listening to that. Look at her. I know. She's really, she's really amazing. And I came to, I became aware of her um, because I happened upon a video that she put out um, last year for a song called Wrap My Hijab, mm. which is so beautiful. The video is, I'm, I'll link it on the website. She's, um, first of all, she is eight months pregnant in the video and totally owning it. So she's like rapping and like rubbing her big belly. It's so (laughs) awesome. Um, So, and she is just completely fearless in the video. She's surrounded by this incredibly diverse um, group of hijabis who are breaking it down and they're like dancing. um, She's rapping they're backing her up. The song is gorgeous. She's gorgeous. And she's also, she just, um, she really embodies this like quiet confidence that I admire so much. And I think is so powerful. Like she has a vision. She knows it's going to fly in the face of what a lot of people think a Muslim woman is. Um, but she's going to do it anyway. You know, like that, the fallout of that is like, um, I'm not going to say it's inconsequential to her because I'm sure, I mean, I don't want to speak for her and I'm sure that there is plenty of fallout. Um, but again, she's very driven um, by her her vision and, and her art in a way that I just respect so much. So um, she's definitely blowing up. In fact, when I was finishing my research about her this morning, I discovered that she was interviewed on NPR um, Sunday edition this morning. So Lulu Garcia Navarro interviewed her. Um, and I'm just, I hope I don't get in trouble for doing this, but I'm just going to play like a tiny little bit of her interview. Um, so you can kind of hear a little bit about her in her own words. This is her song. I'm a Muslim woman who has her master's degree in Christian ethics. And that shocks a lot of people, but what it does for me is it informs my historical and present social location as an American woman. When I was sitting in a class, we were studying what it is to be barbaric, barbarian. Mm. And at the same time, I'm studying the New Testament. I'm studying the words of Paul. I'm studying what it is to be other inside of the Roman Empire. And doing all of that work while the current sitting president was making comments about Mexicans, comments about Muslims, comments about trans people. I felt like if there was ever a moment to speak love into the universe, it was here. So obviously she's brilliant and very, very insightful and in no way um, is she, um, what's the word, Uh, censoring herself and in terms of what, you know, how she feels about what's going on currently. So, um, her new album just dropped. It's called Barbarican, which refers to her experience of being constantly perceived 
as the other, um, as she mentions in that clip. And Mona and her husband got some press a few years ago for setting up a stand in Cambridge with a sign that said, talk to a Muslim. Do you remember that? There, it was like, yeah, there was a number of, um, of articles and uh, about her. Um, and so she's obviously always been about fostering understanding and love and putting beauty out into the world. And so are we. That's what I'm really hoping um, to do with this podcast. So I'm really excited to welcome her to the Hot Dog Hall of Fame. Yay! Yay! Oh, those are two. And also, what a brilliant model of intersectionality, right? So beautiful. Absolutely. All the different things that a person can be. It's so great. I love it. And, um, and that she, I mean, I ha this is I don't know this part of her that well, but from the way she describes herself on the website, she seems to also be um, an environmentalist too. That that this vision that she has of love and unity really extends to the earth as well, which I think is just so beautiful. Yeah, definitely need to check her out some more. Yeah, listen to the album; you would love it. It's really, it's. It's great and it's inspiring and it's very feminist and it's um it's yeah all yeah, good stuff. What I need to listen to that's what's up. Mm -hmm. All right, well I think that brings us to the end. Ah, I know I've had so much fun talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. This is the best. I can't wait to hear more of the episodes and see this be such an inspiring thing for people everywhere. This is good stuff. We need more good things in the world right now. I agree. And this has been very, very fun to work on. And, and thanks for, um, thanks for taking the time. I know you're super busy and I really appreciate you juggling your, your little one and all of your responsibilities and being on Feminist Hot Dog. Well, if any of his little uh, antics creep into the recording, I, <laughs> I don't apologize because I'm a mom and that's what it is. <laughs> that's right. It just makes it better. It's feminism in action, folks. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again for being on here. And thanks everyone for listening. Love yourself. Love your buns. Bye.